Jude, and we, my goal was to get all the way down to verse 16. That is not going to happen. In fact, after a while, I stopped trying. So um, we're not going to make it past verse 7. So let me just apologize uh, beforehand. Um, but uh, we will finish Jude um, at some point. I don't know. Uh, anyways, Jude, Jude 5 to 7. Let's go ahead and, and read it. It says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not, say, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, um, well, in verses 1 to 4, Jude tells us who it is that he's talking about, right? Uh, those who have crept in unnoticed. You remember, he has a fascination with three, right? So, so early on, he, he, it's a... Uh, it's mercy, love, and peace, I believe it is. Yeah, mercy, peace, and love. And then he, he, he says there are three things, right? Um, licentiousness, and they deny Lord and Savior, uh, or our Master and Lord, uh, so on and so forth. Well, that, that pattern of three is going to continue for most of the book. It, it's not, I don't think it's very strict, but you'll see it. And so what we want to do is, is now he's saying, look, this is who they are. This is what's going to come of them. And he begins by looking at a group of three. So in verses 5 through 7, we have three examples. We have the Exodus story, right, in verse 5. We have the Nephilim, or really the Watchers, in verse 6. And then we have Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. Okay? So three examples. And then he's going to take a brief break in verse 8. And starting in verse 9, he's going to pick up with, I think, is another three. Uh, we'll, we'll look at that. Not next week. Next week is our um, candlelight service. But the week after that, for New Year's, we'll, we'll look at verse 8 and following. Uh, so here are three examples from the Old Testament um, regarding what will happen to these false teachers. Let's start with the, the Israelites here in verse 5. And notice where he begins, I want to remind you. Uh, now, this is uh, uh, clearly in the context uh, or, or in a tradition, I should say, of Hebrew prophets, right? The Bible, Old and New Testament, are constantly drawing us to uh, remembrance. Uh, what I did was I, I started to look for examples of this, realized there were too many for me to give them all to you. So let me give you just a few. Eventually, I just had to cap it. Deuteronomy 6, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, right? Don't forget that I did this for you, all right? Same thing in Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So, so don't just forget the ex, don't, don't forget the, the redemption out of Egypt, but remember God's grace shown to you over and over again for 40 years. Remember Deuteronomy is sort of a last sermon by Moses, right on the brink of entering the promised land. Isaiah 46, remember the former things of old. I am, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. So don't forget this. Remember what I've done in the past, the things of old, which should remind you I am God. Um, 
First Corinthians 11, here's a New Testament example. Uh, now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. Notice Paul says here, you remembered what I taught you and you continue them. The idea of, of remembering. Um, yeah, that's, that's good enough. I believe that's supposed to be 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, not verse 2. Anyways, um, so, so remembering is, is key. I want to remind you what it is you already know. Martin Luther, I think, is in his commentary in Galatians. He, he says that every week I remind them of justification by faith, and if necessary, I beat it in their heads continually. Why? Because we have a tendency to forget. Can I give you 90% of what I like to do in counseling? Right? At least in the back of my head, we've been over this 100 times. Right? Every time you open your Bible, guess what it's going to tell you? Right? Every time I sit in a pulpit, guess what I'm going to tell you? Right? Every time we're with fellowship, every time we're in worship, guess what it is? Right? That's why you've heard me say, um, Jesus focused, gospel centered. It is just pounded in your head repeatedly. When in doubt, you need to ask yourself, what does the gospel say about this? What does the gospel say? And then, and then if you still don't know, ask yourself, what does the gospel say? Remember, 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 right? That's the key. Christianity is not complicated if we remember the gospel. Isn't that what the prophets are saying? You have forgotten what God did to your ancestors in, 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 in Egypt. Therefore, you're chasing after other gods. In the New Testament, we would say, you have forgotten the cross. And that is why you're in the mess that you're in, Right? So Paul will say, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything has to fit within that paradigm of, of the cross. Well, you see, he, he here is talking about the wilderness experience. In verse 5, I want to remind you, though you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who, who did not believe. Now, remember, there is a relationship between Jude and to Peter, right? Second Peter uh, doesn't mention the Exodus. He turns to the story of Abraham and Lot. So there is a difference here, but they're, they're still following a, a similar, similar pattern. Now, Paul uses the Exodus story for his own purposes. In 1 Corinthians 10, we, we won't do that. I want you to note two things about what, what Jude says here about the Exodus. The first, Mark brought this up, I believe it was last week, that Jude says... Jesus brought them out of Egypt. Look at your trend. Does anyone have anything other than Jesus brought them out of the land? The message says master. The master? So it connected. Okay. Lord. Okay. Well, those are the same people, but they're different words. Can we agree on that? Why then do we have such a variance? Now, next to Lord, Master, Jesus in your Bible, is there a little number or a letter for a footnote. Someone want to read to, read to me your footnote? Some early manuscripts, Jesus. Yeah, okay. Is that pretty much what you got? Other manuscripts say this? Right. So what we have here is a manuscript problem. By that I mean we have thousands of manuscripts, right, of the New Testament, thousands. Uh, you had uncials, you had uh, 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 partial manuscripts, all that. We have a manuscript within the first century, likely, of, it's, a, it's, a part, it's a partial, very small, of the Gospel of John's front and back. And we, we can take you right to the passage, you know. Um, but but we, ha we have just, just thousands of them. And some will say Jesus here, some will say Lord, some will say Master, you know. Now, why, why is that? Because when you read the Old Testament, Jesus didn't bring people out of Egypt. 
So the question is, what did Jude say? Now, th this is my theory, and, and what textual critics do, those who try to figure out what exactly did Jude write here and, and the other writers, is, is one of the things they do is which reading is less likely, right? Does that make sense? So, so if the word was originally Lord, that's pretty natural reading, right? The Lord got the Israelites out of Egypt. Well, that makes sense. Who would write Jesus? And then that makes you wonder, what if Jesus was the original? And the, the evidence suggests to me, in my reading of the evidence, this is a matter of interpreting of, of varied evidence, I do think it's Jesus. Because it's not what you would expect in reading the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't show up in the Old Testament by name. So I do believe Jude says, Jesus redeemed your, your, your forefathers, the Jewish forefathers, out of Egypt. Is that what you have? Yeah, it's Jesus. Yeah, now some will say Lord, some will say Master. But what probably happened were scribes were trying to fix that. Well, it, someone made a mistake and put Jesus. That's natural. So it probably said Lord. We have other examples of this in, in the New Testament. Um, this shows up a lot with the Gospels with parallels. Um, and so that's probably why you have a, a variance. I think it's Jesus. Now, now, now remember... Jude, I'm going to assume that reading is right. Jude is claiming the problem with these apostates is they, they deny that Jesus is Lord and Master. But what is the story of Exodus all about? They're exchanging one master for another. Right? That's essentially what it's about. So, so they leave Egypt, God destroys them, and then what does he do? Well, here's the list of rules, right? You're going to be a nation. Now, it's more complicated than... than master slave but but it is there right i mean uh so so instead of obeying pharaoh you're going to obey me and so what jude is saying is they deny their master which is what that generation of jews did and they were destroyed in the wilderness so it's striking isn't it now that is consistent with what we get in the bible um did i put this up here uh no first uh, corinthians 10 paul says and the Jews drank the same spiritual drink, and they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. You know what they're talking about? When Moses strikes the rock and water comes out, you read that and you're thinking, I don't see Jesus. Well, in a very real sense, it is Jesus. Think about it. Moses is in trouble for striking the rock twice. Now, that's not that big of a deal. But theologically, it's a big deal. Because Christ is only struck in once as an eternal sacrifice. Right? So, so it's a big deal to Paul. Because he says it, it, that rock is a type of Christ. It's pointing us to Christ. Because Jesus and, and the New Testament used the, the imagery of, of come to me, you'll never thirst again. Right? The woman at the, at the whale. Revelation is full of that language. We've seen it in, in our devotions. Uh, so Jude's point is that just as Jesus delivered and then later condemned apostate Israel, he will do the same to these apostates creeping into the church. So he presents Jesus here as both savior and judge. The second thing we need to see here is that Jesus destroyed them for their unbelief. That's the word that's used there, destroyed. Now, given Jude's summary of the Exodus accounts, it seems as if he has a particular passage in mind. In Numbers chapter 14, it says, and I meant to put that up there. I must have over, must overlooked. Boy, I'll skip. If the next thing is Acts, I don't. Oh, well. Yeah. 
I did do some skipping. All right, Numbers 14, is it? Uh, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Notice, how long will they not believe in me? It's probably the passage that Jude has in mind. Notice what it says again. Um, afterward, he destroyed those who did not believe. This is a matter of faith. But you'll notice... Uh, well, the same thing is repeated in Psalm 78, because they did not believe in God. Right? This is referencing the Exodus generation. So faith is the issue. Now, now think about it. Do they deny God, the Bible, the church, Jesus? No. No, they believe that he died on the cross, right? They believe that. The problem here is that intellectual understanding is not necessarily the same thing as faith. Right? It's very important. We, we struggle with that. And oftentimes we think, well, if you believe the right set of doctrines, you're okay. You may just squeak in, but you're fine because you recited the creed. That is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is faith that, that bears fruit. Fruit is evidence of the faith. Faith produces the fruit. So when they come in, bringing with them licentious living... Jude is saying that like the Israelites, they believed in God. They would, stand, they would wake up every day and say, the Lord your God is one. Hear, O Israel, right? The problem is, is by their lack of faith, they stand condemned. So God was faithful to them, but they were not faithful to God. So how did God destroy the Israelites there in the wilderness? Well, first of all, he opened the earth and swallowed them whole. That is just cool. I don't care who you are, right? I mean, I, I read that as a teenager, and I thought, this is the stuff in the Bible I wish they, that we had talked about in Sunday school, right? We can do a whole VBS just on that, right? None of the girls will come, but the boys will, right? Tell me more about God swallowing the people a whole, like in Star Wars, right? You know, and now Boba Fett survived that, you know, because Disney needed the money. But anyways, secondly, he strikes them with fire so much so that over 2,000 men perish. Now that, again, is just cool. I don't care who you are. Thirdly, they are bitten by poisonous snakes. And that's where you get the bronze serpent uh, uh, story. So God did indeed destroy them. And this is a warning from Jude saying that, that whether in this life or the next, God will do the same to the apostates. The second is the Nephilim, or the watchers. And this is going to take some time, Okay. Now, verse 6 there, angels who did not, oh, well, let, let me read it in the whole. Um, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, where in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is that told? It ain't. Where in the Old Testament do you see angels leaving their proper domain, the proper abode, and are then thrown into eternal chains? They come to earth and, and mate with uh, That's the story he has in mind. Yeah. So that detail that Jude has given us is not in the Bible. Okay? Now, I'm not saying it's unbiblical. I'm saying it's not in the Bible. Now, that sounds like I'm borderline liberal, Right? 
you know, lower taxes except on the rich. I'm conservative. Uh, just hold up there. Um, so, so what do we do with this? Okay, let's compare this with 2 Peter, okay? 2 Peter says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Remember, there are parallels between Jude and 2 Peter 2, okay? So Peter clearly connects the, the story of the angels with Noah, okay? Now, everyone agrees that what Jude has in mind here is the story of the watchers, which is not a biblical term. It's, it's in Daniel, but for the most part, it's not, not a biblical term um, of what precedes the flood. We talked about this in some detail um, in the summer, something like that in Genesis 6. So here's Genesis chapter 6. Now, the flood narrative starts in chapter 6. This is the beginning of it, and it ends in chapter 9. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. Nephilim is a transliteration. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay? And we spent quite a while trying to figure out what in the world's going on here. There are three major interpretations. One is the sons of God are descendants of Seth. The daughters of men are descendants of Cain. Chapters 5 is the genealogy of both of them. So the idea is you have a godly line, and you have, which is the seed of the woman. You have an ungodly line, which is the seed of the serpent. So what you get in chapter 6 is the sons of God, daughters of men, these two lines mix. And what you get out of that is unrighteousness. Right. Uh, that is one very popular uh, interpretation. Really, the genesis there is, is Augustine. Uh, emphasized again in the Reformation and still around. Um, I've held that at one point. I, I go back and forth with all these. Another possibility is it speaks of the um, ancient kings uh, and their wars and everything trying to dominate over everyone so they would make probably a connection to someone like Nimrod uh, where similar language is, is used. So the Nephilim are giants, these mighty men who overpower over, uh, other people. Then there is a third uh, more prominent interpretation. That is what you have is the sons of God. That language is used for the most part throughout the Bible to describe divine beings. Okay? Um, call them angels, demons, divine counsel. Right. Um, so for example, in Job 1 and 2, Satan presents himself with the sons of God. Right? And, and so that language is commonly used to describe divine beings. So what you have is divine beings coming down, um, uh, mixing with human women, creating a super race called the Nephilim, giants. And, and they, they rule and reign, and their evil increases. Okay? And that is why God sends the flood. Now, you'll notice what is right there. Is there anything said of angels leaving their proper domain? And if you go all the way through the end of the story of the flood, does it say anything about God casting the Nephilim into uh, darkness, into eternal chains? Any of that there? No. So where is Jude getting all this information? Well, this is where it gets trippy. Okay. Um, Jude's interpretation of this story... Well, let me say, Jude is borrowing from the, the last interpretation. Now, if this is Jude's, uh, Jude's interpretation, that's a separate question. 
but Jude is referencing a, the most common interpretation of that event, okay? Um, so I, I think, I think that's, that's a important way, way of putting that. So most Jews at the time uh, believed that it was divine beings coming down mixing with, with, with women um, and creating this super race called Nephilim. Where that story is told in detail is in a book called First Enoch, or it's called the Book of Enoch. There's a second Enoch. We're not worried about that. I encourage you to read it. At least read chapters 6 to 16. not very long. I actually put chapters 6 to 9 on a single piece of paper. I was gonna, we were going to read it, but we ain't got time for that, okay? Uh, it is a fascinating book. It's a very influential book to this day. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox, I think it's in their Bible, Okay. We talked about it a little bit. Jude will quote from this book in verses 14 and 15. He actually quotes from it. We've talked about that. Okay? So what First Enoch says is um, that what the, ne- the, the, he calls them the watchers, the sons of God. They're called watchers. If you ever watch ancient aliens, you'll hear that term and you'll hear First Enoch mentioned. Okay? Do with that whatever you want. I don't think they're aliens coming down. I don't think that. But... The watchers, these divine beings, they come down, and it isn't just that they have offspring with human women, but that they teach humanity all kinds of horrendous things. Sorcery, violence, weaponry, all this sort of stuff. You read it, he gives it all the detail. He names some of the watchers who, who, who meet, you know, so, and then he names the angels. So if you've ever been in the Catholic church background, you've ever heard not just of Gabriel and Michael, but of Raphael. Oh, well, that comes from First Enoch and tradition, Jewish tradition, all that sort of stuff. And there's others. Um, notice that Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and others, they all end with E-L. It's a short for God, Elohim. Do with that whatever you want. That's free. Um, so um, now, why is this so important? Jude is writing to people who, who, are, who are twisting the Bible. And I think what he does is he, he takes their reading of Scripture and he uses it against them. Okay? I think broadly is what Jude is doing. Now, Jews at this time believed not in one fall, but in three. Can you name them? Genesis 3, you better get that right, right? There's a serpent, there's fruit, humanity falls. Can you think of the other two, what they might be? Um, Genesis, 6 and Genesis 6, you got the watchers. So, so the first is a uh, uh, mankind is fallen, right? That's the first. So, so what you get out of Genesis 3 is the depravity of man. So, so you got the seed language. Um, and the hope is... One will come from the seed of the woman as a man to redeem men from his depravity, right? Virgin birth is sort of important in that regard. The watchers is the second. This is the flood story, right? So God, what you have is these divine beings, somewhat mysterious, all that stuff. They come down and they, 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 they add a cosmic um, uh, part of the fall, right? Can you think of what the third might be? It is Babel. Um, yeah, it is Babel. Before, before we get there, I skipped some stuff. Um, yeah, forgive me. I've been doing a lot of reading on this stuff lately, and, and it is cool, but it is, it is, it, it's a lot. So you're either going to love this stuff or you're just going to be bored to death. I don't know what, what, what to tell you. Okay. Uh, now, when it comes to the Nephilim and the Watchers and all that, why is that so important to the Jews? Um, it is because they view 
the cosmic supernatural threat on the earth as very real. Now, now think about it. I want us to pause. We don't like that because we, we live in a modern world. So we don't talk a lot about spiritual warfare. Let's be honest. We're uncomfortable with that language. Now, we believe it. We don't talk about it. Now, think about it. If, if you're a Jew and you very much believed that there was a cosmic threat everywhere you went, a supernatural threat everywhere you went, and then you read a story about a man who comes and he casts demons out, you're going to listen. Think about it. No one in the Old Testament is doing that. Out of nowhere, Jesus is casting out demons. Where did that come from? It ain't in the Old Testament. But it comes from this worldview that, that there is a cosmic supernatural threat and that the Jews view the world through that supernatural lens. And that's going to show up with Babel. Now think about this. The flood happens that wipes out all the Nephilim, right? But how do you explain the presence of Nephilim and giants later on in the Old Testament? Can I prove it to you? Numbers 13. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, or Anak, who come from the Nephilim. Now, now notice, the Anakians are sons of the Nephilim. So the Nephilim come from them. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seem to them. Now, remember, this is a story where you got 12 spies go out. 10 of them come out and says, these dudes are tall. Okay, Paul Bunyan's out there, all right? We don't want to mess with old Paul Bunyan and his ox. <laughs> Have you seen that ax? We don't want to mess with that. Right? And it's Joshua and Caleb who say, no, we got this, yo. Right? Well, what are the Nephilim doing there? What they got taken care of in, 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 the, in the flood? Well, let's look at some other passage. Deuteronomy chapter 2. This is all in parentheses. Uh, the Amim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, but they are also counted as the Raphaim, but the Moabites call them Amim. Now, now, you lost yet? Right? You got to know Hebrew, pronounce all those names. Well, the Anakim, remember, sons of Anak. So there's a relationship between the Raphaim and the Anakim and the Nephilim. I am in Hebrew just is plural. Right? So, so that's why you got a lot of eens. I, I love how it rolls off the tongue, but it's, it's, it's an S in English. Or let's look at Deuteronomy 3. For only Og, the king of Bashan. Now let me just pause there. In First Enoch, the watchers, these divine beings, they come down at Mount Her Hermon. Okay? Another name for Mount Hermon, we believe, is Bashan. Okay? That's where, so Bashan is, is where Mount Hermon is. So this guy is where, supposedly, according to Enoch, of course Enoch didn't write it, the watchers came down. So to them, that is the gates of hell. Right there. That's the gates of hell. By the way, when Jesus says, on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail for you. Let me tell you where he said that. Caesarea Philippi, where Mount Hermon was. So what does he mean by the gates of hell? Remember, if it's a gate, that means the gospel is offensive, not defensive. It's a cosmic view of the church. Right? It's it just, this is why I think this stuff's fascinating. Um, okay, so Yath Bashan was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. There it is. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. This is uh, Og. Um, is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was his length and four cubits his breadth, according to the common cubit. There may be a connection to the Babel there. I don't know. I, I can't, 
I'm not for sure yet. But we need to know his bed was very, very, very large. Why? He was a giant. King Og was a giant. Okay. Um, what about this guy? Uh, and there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Right? So, so he's six cubits. That bed is nine cubits. Bigger than Goliath, Og is. Right? Ever sleep on a small couch? You don't like that, do you? <laughs> right? You need one of them long couches. Well, that's, that's Og. So Goliath, he's, he's, he's a giant. Where'd that come from? Now, with that said, do you think it is important that the king of Israel, the king, slays a giant, severs his head, and presents it? You think that's important? Because what's the promise of Genesis 3? Seed of a woman will come, will crush the head of the serpent. You think, you think that's a significant detail in that story? Yeah, it's huge. So David becomes known as the giant slayer. You remember what happens with Saul? Saul is the tallest in the kingdom. He's not a giant, but he is the tallest. Okay? And what happens to him? The Philistines do, do to him what David did to Goliath. It's fascinating, the parallels of this stuff. Let's look at, it, look at another one here. And Ishbenob, that will be on your test, uh, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze. Look, if it's half a shekel of bronze, that sounds heavy to me. Anything made of pure bronze sounds heavy. Right? I'm no expert at this. Um, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. So what do you have here? The giant slayer is now another giant's want to slay him. You think that this detail is important? First, he was a shepherd, now he's a king. And the giants are coming after him. Or we can look at uh, 2 Samuel 21. Uh, after this, there was, again, war with the Philistines at Gob. The Sebekai and the Hashathite struck down uh, Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was, again, war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes in each foot, 24 in number, because you can't count, and he was descended from the giants. And this war goes out. Knowing this stuff is in the Bible, we read this and we're thinking, I hope no critic of the Bible ever comes across this. And that's the way we, we perceive this. So, so we think we got to go out, we got to find some tall dude with, with six toes on each foot and six fingers on each hand, right? And we start to panic because we live in a modern worldview where everything has to be explained. For the Jew, that's not necessarily what they're looking at. I believe these people really existed. To them, they're saying, look, that story happens over and over again. Much in the same way the story of the fall, Genesis 3, happens throughout Genesis so too the story of the watchers, if we can borrow that term. It's going to happen over and over again. So think about it. What is Joshua really doing in the conquest? What is David doing in his kingdom? They are, like Noah, wiping out the giants. And if you read the language, that's exactly what they're doing in Joshua and David. So when David cuts off the head, that is a, that is a cosmic war that's being waged there. Who is this that comes to me like a dog and a stick? Who is this? What's David going to say? Like Caleb and Joshua before him. I ain't scared. Because the God who wiped you out with a flood will wipe you out with a stone. So when Jesus shows up, cast out demons who are mighty and many, people start to pay attention.
Well, that's a lot there, and there's more, but that's a lot, okay? The third fall you get is Babel. So I couldn't come up with a very good F word here. So fortress was the only one I can come up with, but so don't tell my preacher professors I couldn't, I couldn't alliterate at all, okay? So forgive me in advance. Now think about it. At Babel, you have a unified people divided into nations. And at this time, what God does is he hands the nations over to evil. Think about it. In Romans 1, what does Paul say? That God in judgment hands us over to our base desires. In the Jewish mindset, this is what God does at Babel to the nations. Now think about it. Read the Old Testament. Why is land and an ethnicity so important? Because of Babel. Out of Babel comes Abraham. Ur, we talked about him two Sundays ago. Ur is right next to Babel. Out of Babel, Ur comes a man named Abraham who's called out from among the nations to be God's people. Right? So let me see if I can prove this to you, that God disinherits the nations in favor of Israel. Deuteronomy 32. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind. See it there? Now, when did God do that? He did it at Babel. He fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. That language sound, sound familiar now in light of Genesis 6? But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Notice that the, those who inherit the promises of God are Israel. Everyone else has been disinherited. That happens at Babel. Here's another one. Uh, no, we'll stop there. We'll come to the first night here in a second. So, so why is this important? Because the Jews viewed evil not just as Genesis 3 fall, and they may, I think they may be right on this, but they're saying there is internally there's evil within me. Right? I inherited that going all the way back to Adam and Eve. There's a cosmic evil that is at war against me that's been going on for centuries, and we need a Messiah to deal with that. There is systemic evil all around me. So yeah, Babel from the Babylons, this is why they would dare to come to conquer us. But God will destroy them. Oh, Egypt? Of course they enslaved the people of God. They've been disinherited by him. The Assyrians? Yeah, I understand that. The Romans? So there's three falls to explain all the evil in the world. Think about the debates we are having right now in this country. Is evil in this country systemic? Or is it personal? What's the Christian response? You're missing one because it's all three. It is supernatural. It is systemic because nations are fallen, including America. And it's personal. I, too, am part of the problem. So when Jude borrows this story, he's picking up on a broader view of, 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 viewing, of a theology of the world that the Jews held. And First Enoch um, is, is the easiest book to point to when it comes to the story. And so, um, so you'll notice here what Jude is doing is he's equating the apostates in, in this church with the angels, angels here, generic term he uses, who abuse their authority. The watchers abuse their domain to take advantage and to victimize not innocent man necessarily, but people who didn't deserve what happened to him. At the same time, he's arguing, like those angels, those sons of God, those watchers, so too the, the apostates corrupt sensuality. So the sons of God come down and they're motivated by a fleshly desire, lust. So too that is what's happening here. 
So just as, as Jude would say, just as they are evil and is a cosmic evil, this too is a cosmic evil. And it must be dealt with and treated that way to surrender yourself to that sort of desire. And notice they are kept in chains. We really got to move on. We haven't even gotten to Solomon and Gomorrah. Kept in chains. Now, this is consistent from First Enoch. First Enoch says, uh, from henceforth, uh, you shall not ascend into heaven unto all eternity, right? So, so that they're under judgment. And in bonds of the earth, the decree has gone forth to bind you for all the days of the world. You can look at the book of Jubilees. You can look at other passages that would use similar language. Now, is this exactly what happened? I don't know. But Jude borrows from that tradition to make his own point. This apostasy and, and the fruit that comes out of it, God has condemned in, in, in the most, most striking way. To the point he sent a flood and he condemned them to eternal darkness. This is saying this is hellish and it will be damned in the end. This is a very strong language from Jude early on in the book. But then that leads to, uh, by the way, that great day, that is a uh, day of the Lord language. Their, their doom is assured. Anyways, let's look at Sodom and Gomorrah here. There is a parallel with 2 Peter, yet again. Um, it says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Notice where Peter goes with this. He wants to emphasize not just judgment upon the apostates, like, like those of Solomon and Gomorrah, but how God will preserve the people of God amid that world. And you got to think about it, God's done that. The first century church, the Roman church, they were all surrounded by Solomon and Gomorrah. They were living in Solomon and Gomorrah in Rome. We are living in Solomon and Gomorrah here in America. But God preserved his people. Lot prayed for and was burdened by, yet preserved him. Now, uh, remember, Abraham wants 10 righteous. Give me 10. Like Lot is a family of nine. Give me 10. I got to find one dude who found me on the internet, right? Just one guy. And, and it didn't happen. We will notice there what Jude does with this in verse 7. Just as Solomon and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities was likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, Notice there, the word is likewise. It's an important word there. What is the connection? It's, it's to the watcher story, sons of God. Now think, think about this. We'll talk about this because we'll get to Sodom and Gomorrah next year, Lord willing. In the watcher story, you have divine beings desiring humanity in, in a sensuous way. Sodom and Gomorrah reverses it. It's humanity Desiring divine beings. And that's just awesome. Uh, I mean, it's terrible. Uh, right. But in terms of just seeing the Bible, how it fits together, I just love that stuff. Right? And you'll notice judgment falls on both. One with water, the other with fire. And Jude's picking up with that. It's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, how how this, this works. Well, Sodom is, of course, an archetype for, for judgments in the Bible. In fact, notice what Jesus says here. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? 
you will be brought down to hell, the, the hottest, Hades. Okay? Some debate regarding that word. I think your King James would probably say hell there. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. That's a nice way of saying um, you're worse than they, and they're pretty bad. So if you thought it was bad for Sodom and Gomorrah, it's going to be far worse for you. It's, 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 it's incredible exactly what, what Jesus says there. Now, the emphasis of the Sodom story is licentiousness. The word that Jude uses here, gross immorality, is only used here uh, in the New Testament, not found anywhere else. He uses a very strong word. And he connects it, of course, to um, the watchers. You'll notice that they will be punished with eternal fire. Now, that, again, is connected with the Sodom and Gomorrah story. God uses fire and brimstone to destroy them. And in fact, it's wiped out. One theory is that Sodom is under the, uh, at the bottom of the Dead Sea. I don't know if you've heard this. And so what you have is, is you have a fiery destruction with a flood. That's, that's, that's the Noah story, right? I mean, it's, it's just fascinating. So maybe Jude is picking up on that tradition. Now, not, not everyone holds to that. There's plenty of people who are still trying to find Sodom. When I was in high school, you know, I was thinking about being a preacher. Uh, my parents, for birthday Christmas, they, they got a uh, poorly done documentary at the, at the, at the, uh, Christian, the Christian bookstore. And it was about this guy looking for Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes down into the, into the Dead Sea. He basically finds a hump, right? As we wait, he goes, that, that must be Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like, I don't know, or a whale's been buried or something. I don't know what it is. There's no whales in the Dead Sea. But, but yeah, it was interesting. I, I loved it. I find all archaeology in the Bible fascinating. But there is this search for Sodom and Gomorrah. The whole point of it is, is that God rained down fire from above to completely wipe them off the face of the earth. And what is, what is Jude saying? God deals with apostasy, and God deals with ruining the people of God, their theology, their life, and all that sort of, and, and seducing and corrupting them the same way he does with Sodom. But it isn't a, a, a judgment once. It is once in the sense that it's forever. This is an eternal fire. And guess who else is down there with you? The watchers. So you're numbered among them now. Those in, in eternal chains you will suffer under eternal fire. What strong language this is. This is fire and brimstone preaching, like literally, right? <laughs> I mean, this, this, is, this is better than what you're going to get from George Whitfield or something like that. Um, and let me just add, this is eternal fire. Uh, those who hold to annihilationism that if, if, if you're not saved, you just cease to exist. You're annihilated. I don't hold to that at all. I think you'd be surprised by who does. Uh, the Bible uses the word eternal for a reason. This is an eternal fire, a fire of judgment. Um, and so, um, yeah. So, there, there you have it. And um, verse 8, if you want to look at it, we'll talk about it more next week. Verse 8 serves as a sort of a bridge between what he just said. Yet in like manner, these people, what do you mean by these people? Also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glory. Notice that's a list of four, not three. It's not strict. But you see, see the connection there. Uh, defiling the flesh, that's Sodom, that's, uh, that's the watchers. They reject authority. Right? Isn't that what, what the Jews did with, with Moses? But that verse 8 also connects to what he does starting in verse 9. He'll give Cain as an example and, and other stuff. 
uh, Michael fighting over the body of of Moses, stuff like that. So, so as you can see, there's a lot, lot here. We barely scratched the surface. We'll come back to First Enoch because he's going to quote from from it later on in the book. Okay, we just might get out a little early, which is better than I, I thought. Um, are you completely lost? Yes. Yeah. Mm. So those angels commit the same acts yeah. as Simon Yeah. So um, the, the editors or the translators are making it clear to the reader Sodom and Gomorrah and the Watchers are essentially the same story. Uh, and these apostates, they're, they're, they're going the same direction. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you're interested in the way Jude goes about it, um, my favorite reformer is a guy named John Knox, Bearded Knox. He, he famously made Queen Mary cry. My ancestor was a colleague of his. I got his catechism. I published his catechism. He famously made King James of Scotland cry, who, who became King James I of England. Um, anyways, you don't care about that. John Knox's theology was very much rooted in the immutability of God. That is that God is the same. He never changes. Uh, it's probably my, my favorite theological point. What Knox does is Knox would say, what Bloody Mary is doing here is what Manasseh, King Manasseh, did in the Old Testament. He would preach the way Jude does here. So as Jude is saying, look, these apostates are those angelic beings, and they're condemned. They're like Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're condemned. John Knox would do the same. So he would frequently call Queen Mary Jezebel. He saw uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, as literally as Jezebel. Um, and, and you can see Jude doing essentially the same thing. It makes for fascinating reading. I've read half of, of the complete works of John Knox. It's just fascinating stuff if, if you have that much time in your hands. Um, and you can read the Old English. But, uh, yeah, it is, it is very strong language from Jude. Um, but he's not wrong. To, to corrupt the people of God and to lead them down a path that is destructive is evil. And God's judgment will, will fall down. Now, with that said, um, let's think again about the seriousness of false teaching in our churches. How serious it is. It really is serious. So, anything else you guys got? Just an interesting point of information. When you mentioned the whole, the guy had six fingers and six toes thing. Yeah. That people are skeptical of that. I, I never was. Um, there's an interesting fact about my dad. Um, he was born with six fingers and six toes. Oh, really? He had... Uh, He's a line of the giants. They came, like, off of his pinky. They, they mm -hmm. didn't grow, like, normally. Yeah. So, of course, they were surgically removed yeah. days after he was born. But, um, anyway, so I just... I, I knew that one personally. So that one, I'm like... Skepticism of that particular one wouldn't get very far with me. I'm yeah. just like, no, that actually that happens. So. And that is fairly common. Yeah. Now, we've known where, where uh, after birth that you just surgically remove it now because you probably wouldn't have done that back then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so your, your dad is a descendant of giants. Yeah. He's not a very tall man, but he's a descendant of giants nonetheless. That's, yeah. that's his only excuse for why I ended up, you know, six inches taller than him. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. It's, it's in the Bible. It's right there. Yeah. That's funny. Um, and by the way, to be a giant at this time, if you remember, George Washington was like six foot, something like that. Tallest man around. Uh, so I'm 5'9". I'm short. I'd be pretty tall back in the day. 
So my dad's 5'3". He's probably about normal height for back then, right? <laughs> That's why my kids don't stand a chance in terms of being tall. My one regret in life is, is well, two. I'm not six foot. That was always a goal of mine. I worked hard at it. And I've always wanted, like, these massive soccer calves. You know, like when you're a teenager, these things matter to you. And, and I'm always jealous of those. Just one step, you can just see God's glory in, in their calf muscles. I always wanted that. People watching home wonder what in the world we're we talking about. So, okay, how about we stand up and we will pray.